Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. I'm delighted today that we have Jay Coakley, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Colorado. Um, been working for 40 years or more looking at the research on connections between sports culture and society, uh, particularly focusing on young people. His uh, textbook, Sports and Society, Issues and Controversies, in 11th edition, most widely used text in the world. Um, I believe it's been translated into at least Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and, and potentially Croatian, and maybe some, some others since then. Um, internationally respected scholar, author, uh, received many awards. Um, one of his goals is to make sports participation a source of enjoyment and development for young people, make sports more democratic and humane for people of all ages. And uh, I am just delighted that, that Jay is a member of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board and, and uh, a big source of wisdom for our movement. Jay, so great to have you today. Thank you very much, Jim. So it's good to be a part of PCA. So let me, um, you know, I just said that one of your goals is to make sports more democratic. Um, you know, if you think about some of the iconic coaches uh, that people look up to, democratic is not the first word that comes to mind. Why is that so important? Well, I think that the athletes, players, regardless of age in organized sports, uh, today have been marginalized as decision makers and have in the process lost control over part of their sport experience and and as that occurs it's more more and more difficult for them to claim ownership of their sport and their sport experiences and then that has implications for uh fair play uh, sportsmanship uh, and and the way they approach their own sport participation. Well, if we think about life lessons coming from sports, you know, PCA's, uh, our tagline is better athletes, better people. It's not just about getting to be better athletes, better people. Um, and, you know, theoretically, we live in a democracy, so um, do you feel like uh, a situation where athletes have, I love what you said, Marginalized the decision makers, and the coaches are making all decisions. All the decisions. Um, does that really prepare kids to be functioning members of a democracy? Yeah, that's a that's a point that that I would certainly make. And uh, you know, when we look at the literature on developmental processes, one of the things that we see is that uh, young people who have high levels of self control. Uh, are, are, are those who are most likely to achieve in school and to be successful in life uh, and to be better people. And it's very difficult to develop that self-control when decision-making is taken out of your hands. So what's, what's happening in, in most of sports, instead of developing self-control, is we develop obedient players or players who are resistant to coach demands, but but uh, we don't have uh, any any evidence that we're developing self-control. You know, a, a big term that we use a lot is moral courage. You know, when we think of courage, we think about in our in our society, we typically think about physical courage. <clears throat> um, moral courage, in our definition, means standing up for what you believe to be is right, uh, even when your own 
quote tribe, your your friends, your family, your community um, doesn't agree with that. And having that kind of moral courage to be able to say, hey, this is wrong, uh, when when your coach and your team and your school is all going the other direction, um, that seems to me to be an important part of being a, a citizen in a democracy as well. Definitely, and and I I can think of no better place than sport to get some experience to exercise moral courage. Um, what is sports sociology? I mean, you know, sports psychology. Everybody, I think, has an understanding of that. That's to help you perform better. How would you describe the discipline of sports sociology? Well, uh, for the people who understand sports psychology, psychology looks at at the internal environment of the individual and how it affects that individual's behavior. And sociologists look at the external environment, the, the context within which all of us uh, have opportunities or face constraints and make decisions, and we look at the impact of that context on on our actions. That seems like um, like a pretty important uh, important uh, area of study. Definitely, the the I think that that in the United States we underestimate the extent to which social forces influence us because we have such a heavy emphasis on individualism in this culture. But uh, as we've seen with the recent economic crisis and with what's going on in in education, uh, especially in low-income and, and low-income minority communities, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to see that social forces affect our lives, uh, affect our life chances in many cases, uh, uh, either positively or negatively, and, and have an impact on who we are and how we connect with the rest of the world. Um, it seems like um, I mean you, you've looked at, at sport uh, in uh, across multiple countries, and um, you know I have a little bit of experience that not not a whole lot, but it seems like um, sports is a deeper part of the identity of Americans than perhaps in other countries. Why is sport so important uh, to this society? Well, let me let me uh, go back and and raise a question there. You know, I I thought exactly the way you did, and then I went to Ireland and Northern Ireland and and England and Slovenia and Brazil, and I looked around, and sport in those cultures appears, at least from my perspective, to be just as important as it is in the United States. Uh, you know, we we see the headlines and. And uh, we are emotionally involved in some cases in the fates of particular teams at various levels, but uh, but there's there's a similar thing going on in other cultures. I guess one of the big differences is they don't have interscholastic sports to the same extent that we do, but that doesn't mean that that they don't have sports for. Uh, people of all ages, but it occurs through clubs rather than than uh, through the schools, and those community uh, those clubs are community based uh, rather than school based. So, uh, so I, I think maybe the larger question is why has sport on a global level become uh, such an important sphere uh, of of activity and. 
And I think it's because it combines authenticity. In other words, the authenticity of the players themselves. Uh, we can see that, that this is coming uh, from them in a spontaneous way. And it also has a, a very strong emotional component uh, to involvement, either as a spectator or as a participant. And sport is also interactive. In other words, it involves people directly. So when you combine those three things, the authenticity, the interactivity, and the emotionality of sport, you have, an act, you have something that's going to capture people's attention. When you say it's interactive, you mean in terms of the fans also being involved? Certainly. I mean, you know, we see in Seattle right now, uh, as the Seahawks go to the Super Bowl, uh, people are all wearing their number 12 shirts as the 12th man, and, and players constantly thank the, the fans for their support and, and, uh, and say that they're motivated by uh, the noise that fans make and so on. So uh, I think that some of that maybe is overemphasized, uh, especially at the professional level, but uh, but it is interactive. And in the crowd, uh, there's interaction between spectators, not only between spectators and the players on the on the on the field in terms of just responding to each other in a sense uh, uh, in an indirect way, but in the stands, there's there's direct kinds of interaction. And among the players, obviously, there's direct interaction there. So when you're out on the field, you are are responding directly to spontaneous things that are happening, and and uh, it's it's occurring in a very highly structured environment, and that's kind of unique in our experience. So, uh, so sport is attractive to many people from a participation uh, standpoint, and it's attractive from a spectator standpoint as well. You know, there's a, a, a famous study, or maybe there's more than one study, but <clears throat> I think of it as uh, basking in reflected glory. You familiar with that that research? Yes, I am. Can you can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Describe it for our listeners. Uh, yeah, it's called burging, uh, basking in reflected glory, and and when you when you uh, emotionally identify with with a team, and that identification becomes relatively strong. It becomes a part of your identity that you know in other words your your fan uh involvement is part of who you are, and when you the team that you're a fan of succeeds, then that gives your identity a a positive push and uh and you feel good emotionally and it also in some cases affects the way you approach your social relationships and uh and how people respond to you so so once sport becomes a part of uh, once sport fanship becomes a part of your identity in some way shape or form either through your university through your residence in a particular city state or region or country then uh when the team that represents that entity succeeds uh you feel good about who you are and that's basking in reflected glory I I remember one, reading about one study where the researchers I think there were big a Big Ten school or schools, and the uh, the Monday after the football team won a game, they they went around and counted how many people were wearing, uh, you know, shirts and stuff rep representing that school, and then they did the same thing after the the 
the school's team lost a football game, and the number of people wearing you know gear that uh, for that school went way up on the the Mondays after they won a game. Right. Yeah. It's it's uh, you know when when we make public identity claims, we feel much freer doing so when the identities that we're claiming are are seen in a positive light. So uh so after our team wins, uh we're we're going to make those claims obvious by wearing a jersey or a color. Uh when the team loses, we're not so eager to to make that identity claim. So uh so yeah, this is that's one of the the many ways that sport enters our lives. You know the um, what's what's the phrase uh, uh, sun t- uh, uh, sunshine soldier like you're you're supporting something when it's going well and then you're not and when I first read the the um, the about the basking in reflected glory <clears throat> I decided that from now on I'm gonna wear the gear for teams that I they care about uh, after they lose <laughs> that I want to be. <laughs> A winter soldier. Like if I if I care about a team, um, I wanna I wanna be identified with them after they lose, and not just be a, you know, a, a, you know, jumping on the bandwagon kind of guy. Right. Yeah. And I, I and and I think that that you're not the lone ranger there. That uh, there's plenty of examples. I grew up in Chicago, for example. Uh, and and I was a White Sox fan, but Cub fans oftentimes uh, experienced losing seasons, at least to a greater extent than White Sox fans when I was growing up. And and uh, and they they wore their their Cub symbols proudly, despite those losing seasons. And there's other examples: New York Mets back a number of years ago. Uh, there's even some universities where 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 students uh uh are fans of teams that have failed to win a game for quite a while and 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 in a sense uh, under those circumstances claiming that identity uh is is something that you do publicly because you want to show people that despite the losses uh this is who you are but but that's that's rel- that's a whole lot uh, more rare than than burging, basking in reflected glory. Um, you know, one of the things that happened just recently in the the 49ers um, loss on the last play to the the Seahawks was uh, Richard Sherman's uh, fantastic play at the end, <clears throat> where he tipped the ball to a teammate. And I'd actually read an article in uh, on Grantland.com a week or two before about the the Seahawks. Uh, defense and how great it was and how uh, Sherman, I mean, this is just like calling it. Sherman was so great at tipping the ball to teammates and the teammates were always looking for that. So in a sense, he's a real team player. Uh, And it turns out um, the guy, the linebacker who caught the ball at the end, you know, had come a long way to, uh, you know, be in position to catch that. So, you know, from a standpoint of somebody making his team better, you know, we talk about um, triple impact competitors make yourself better, your team better, team better, and the game better. Richard Sherman makes his team better. Um, but I wonder if you would, you know, give us a sports sociologist uh, reaction to Richard Sherman's comments right after the game about uh, about um, uh, you know Michael Trab- Crabtree and, and what happened there. Yeah, I, I think we have to put that in context, and this is what I do as a sociologist. If you were to have 
watched Sherman and Crabtree during that game, uh, you know that there was some heavy-duty uh, uh, emotions uh, involved in in just their oppositional relationship, and they were talking to each other through much of the game, and when a quarterback goes to uh, the receiver that you're guarding, uh, when the chips are down at the end of the game, and you've been able to disrupt that play, uh, there's a there's a number of things that are going on. On the one hand, you know this is almost uh, uh, a dare uh, that the quarterback has given you to break up the play. Uh, you've had this emotional connection with Crabtree through the game, and well, and, and, and you rise to the challenge, and you are you have been completely emotionally separated from the rest of your life for the last th- at least three and a half hours, probably uh, more like days, and uh, and then about. About two minutes later, somebody asks you a question while you're still in that emotional state. Uh, that's almost unfair of the media uh, to expect that that someone who has uh, gotten himself up for that game and just pulled this playoff. And, by the way, Crabtree made uh, – uh, there were comments exchanged between Crabtree and Sherman, and Crabtree, Crabtree shoved Sherman, and Sherman uh, uh, did not shove him back. So, uh, so he repressed that particular response, and that just added to the emotion of the moment, and uh, and he got carried away. So uh, I see that as as uh, something that's that's very understandable, given the context within which that that guy had had just been for the last three hours, the last uh, two minutes, and the last four days. Well, the the other thing that occurs to me is that that um, Kaepernick didn't throw to uh, uh, Sherman's side the entire game, pretty much. I think only one throw until that point. So. Um, that that may have made it even more that way. It, it strikes me that you're uh, a little more forgiving of Richard Sherman than a lot of people who commented immediately right after that. Yeah. Well, I know who Richard Sherman is and where he came from, and uh, he grew up in Compton. Uh, he he has uh, parents that emphasized education. He uh, excelled in in high school academically. He went to Stanford. He graduated, uh, uh, I think, on time, which is pretty rare these days. Uh, he's in a master's degree program. He's articulate. He's involved in the community. And uh, so, when I look at a at a ten second uh, tire, emotional tirade uh, in that particular set of conditions versus the past 24 years of his life, I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for uh, for, for that that, uh, that comment. <clears throat> One of the um, most provocative things um, you've you've said and written about. Uh, you've talked about youth sports and you've compared it with child labor. You know, we, you know, many, many years ago we had a lot of child labor, um, and then, you know, there were there were laws against it. And you've you've said that that youth sports can be sometimes like child labor. Would you elaborate on that? Yeah, and I'm I'm not referring to all youth sports certainly there, but I'm referring to. 
uh, a development in the United States and some other countries around the world where the livelihoods of adults depend upon the performances of 10 to 14-year-old children, uh, children who are uh, below the age of, of uh of informed consent in, in any context. And uh, these young people, uh, in, in most cases, they, they enjoy what they're doing, or they certainly have incorporated it as part of their identities. And this makes them very easy to, uh, to manipulate in a way. And, uh, and as coaches' livelihoods depend upon their performance, uh, there's a tendency to work those children beyond what what uh, would be considered reasonable if they were working in some other kind of a occupational sphere, uh, and also at a level of intensity that would be considered unreasonable in all other occupational spheres. So uh, it, when children get injured under those circumstances, when their lives are affected in, in negative ways in terms of their development, then I, I think we, uh, we ought to start uh, talking in terms of child labor, uh, even though they're they're not getting paid, they're in an economic context, oftentimes in privatized sport programs, uh, where where uh, the staff in those programs are making their livings uh, uh, off of off of young people and their families paying dues, and they can recruit new members if they have. Uh, performers that are that are doing exceptional and highly visible competitions. So, uh, so there's a tendency under those circumstances maybe to push those kids in ways that uh, we wouldn't allow in other spheres of life. You know, there's a lot of <clears throat> a lot of criticism of of travel teams, and uh, I mean, I think most people would say, you know, a, a travel team situation. You know, for a 14, 15, 16-year-old, one thing, but the travel teams get seems to be getting younger and younger, um, and you know, a lot of skepticism about hiring uh, professional coaches. You know, a hitting coach to work with a young baseball player, for example. Um, but on the other side of it, if you look at someone who, a kid who has some real talent early on as a pianist, um, you would you would want the 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 best piano teacher you can get to help that person. Um, as an athlete, you're gonna you're gonna improve more if you're competing against athletes who who um, you know press you. Um, I, I wonder what your thoughts are about travel teams and and, well, and, and professional coaches. Yeah, well, I'm I'm for uh, a certain amount of professionalization among coaches in terms of of having the training that they need to deal with the with the young people uh, they coach and and deal appropriately in terms of their age and so on. Uh, I think that, that if we're interested in the athletic development of young people, uh, spending, spending an inordinate amount of time sitting in a car or traveling uh, long distances to tournaments or games uh, seems to be counterproductive just in an obvious way. Uh, the other thing is that that many of these travel teams start so early in a child's life that uh, that they don't have an opportunity to do the kinds of physical activity sampling that they need to do to be able 
at age 14, for example, or 15, to make a choice, an informed choice, about what kinds of activities they'd like to specialize in. So the travel teams take up so much of a child's time, not just during the week, but during the entire year, that they're forced to specialize in, in one sport in many cases. And, uh, and that's really counterproductive for the development of athletic talent, much less uh, better citizens. So, uh, so I, I have real reservations about about that kind of competition uh, for any any kids under 13 or 14 years old. Yeah, um, and it, it does seem to be increasing the the, um, uh, the the amount of travel teams. And I've had you know the, the, your your comment about um, it's not it's not the best thing just to make someone a better athlete as well. Um, the it, it seems like. And if you look at most professional athletes, they played more than one sport uh, through much of their life. Um, yeah, and Olympic athletes as well. I mean, there's been some good studies of U.S. Olympians, and uh, you know, more than 80% of them were multiple sport participants while they were growing up. How do you um, how do you deal with a parent? <clears throat> and we, you know, we do positive coaching lines does parent workshops all across the country, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, really, of, of, of parents that we talk to. And I, I would say every single time I've talked to a group of parents, uh, one of the very first questions that comes up is, you know, my son or daughter has is, is got some talent and there's a lot of pressure from the, uh, from the coach to play soccer year-round or baseball year-round, whatever it is. Um, and what they, the, the concern the parents have is the coach is saying, my son has the ability to make the high school team, but only if he focuses on soccer all year round. Um, and you know, he if he does different sports, he by the time he gets to high school, he may not have enough skill in soccer to be able to make the team. What do you what, what should we be saying to parents uh, who ask that kind of a question? Yeah, one of the first things that I say is that that kind of specialization makes your son or daughter much more susceptible to injuries, overuse injuries uh, in in particular, but uh, just general injuries because you're exercising certain muscles in your body repeatedly over a long period of time to the exclusion of more general exercises and that just sets your body up for injury and and if you blow out a knee at at 14 years old uh uh, that's going to affect your, your future in that particular sport. So, if if you start look, if you can look ahead like that, and understand that if your child develops multiple physical skills across a range of activities, that they're going to be uh, much more physically suited to uh, to being injury free in whatever in ever whatever sport they choose. So that's one one issue. The other issue is that uh the burnout rate for uh young people who play a sport all year long for a, a series of of years uh we don't understand from our adult perspective when a child is doing that from age 7 to 12 for example that that's over 40% of their lives spent in that one sport. 
And and if we were to look at our own lives and and uh, say, well, you know, I'm a parent and I'm 38 years old, and if I was if I was spending 19 years in one particular activity, that would that would be counterproductive for my overall development, regardless of the sphere in which it occurs. So, uh, so the the other response there is that you you want your child to have exposure to a variety of of activities, and when at 12 years or 11 or 10 years old, so your child says, you know, I want to switch from soccer to whatever, you've got to understand that they've spent over a third of their lives in that sport, and and they they are more uh, being more realistic than the parents are in ter- when it comes to developmental experiences. Uh, they know that it's important to experience something that adds things to their lives rather than doing the same thing over and over again. And I think most parents understand that, but I think parents are in a real bind because it's the coaches and the so-called pipeline in these sports that the parents uh, get wrapped up in, and they, they know that if their child exits that pipeline that they won't have an opportunity maybe in the future to get back in it. And uh, so then uh, they encourage their children to specialize, thinking that it's going to be in their best long-term interest when, in fact, uh, the majority of those kids are either going to burn out or when they get to be 17 years old, they're going to be very difficult to handle emotionally because they haven't had enough, uh, a broad enough set of experiences to avoid emotional highs and lows that are associated with their success or failure in their sport. So if you talk to the coaches of some of our junior national teams in soccer, for example, uh, one of the things that they'll, they'll say is that it's a real struggle to handle the emotional extremes that these young people experience because they don't have this backlog of experiences across various sports, uh, failing and succeeding, to use as a cushion uh, to soften the emotional blow or to mediate the emotional high that they will experience in this one activity that they've been doing since they were eight years old. Yeah, wow, wow. You know, what also occurs to me is that, um, you know, the number 70% of kids drop out by the time they're 13 uh, is bandied around a lot. Uh, Some of that, I think, is because of, you know, negative coaching experiences. But some of it is as you get to 12, 13, 14, if you're not – uh, if you're not demonstrating that you're elite or potentially elite athlete, there often is no place for you to go. Um, right. You know, kids yeah, are and that's, yeah, that's that's unfortunate. The the we've dropped in most cases intramurals at schools, uh, the so-called recreational programs on the community level have been defined as many uh, by many kids at least uh, and by parents as the places where all the failures go and so they then are seen as second class and it's almost uh, it's it's become almost if if you're not at the top level then it's not worth playing and and I think that's one of the most significant negative things that's going on in connection with movement generally and Board participation in particular within the United States, and it's it's not just happening here; it's happening in some other cultures as well. But uh, 
but it's not happening as much in other cultures. Uh, we emphasize uh, that kind of approach to excellence to a greater extent than in England, for example, where one of the common sayings there is that uh, that that sport is such a valuable activity that it's worth doing badly. <laughs> I love and, that. <laughs> Uh, that uh, and, and we think the exact opposite. You know, sport is a valuable activity, so if you're going to do it here, you've got to excel. Whereas there, they say, hey, uh, you know, it's important that uh, therefore, even if you fail, you got to stay in, and because it's worth it. And if you look at their club teams and uh, and on their university level, when they have their clubs put together, they have three or four sides, teams, uh, that will play against another university. And team one will play against team one. Team four will play against team four. And... Uh, and yeah, there's sometimes a little status distinctions that are made there, but if you're on the fourth team, you're still representing your school or your club, and you're playing against the fourth team from another school or club. Now, I know we don't have the facilities to do that in the United States. As long as we define practice time for the varsity teams in the way we do right now, uh, we would have to make some changes in order to uh, sponsor four or five uh, uh, basketball teams, as an example, uh, from a particular school. And, and, uh, and we would have to change the amount of practice time and so on for that to occur. Or we'd have to reorganize how the gym is set up uh, so that multiple teams could practice uh, in, in, a, in a few hour period of time. So, uh, so I think that that we have we have emphasized an exclusive form of excellence that works to our disadvantage not only on an individual level for young people but on a collective level in our society as a whole. You know, um what one of the things that, that we say over and over again at Positive Coach Alliance is that uh, every kid can have a character building experience from sports. Um and if they develop this mentality of a triple impact competitor, I'm committed to making myself better, my teammates better, and the game better by the way I compete. Um, whether the kid is physically talented or not, that's going to help them if they become a police officer or a teacher or an entrepreneur, whatever it is. Uh, I think, it, and this is where I think the sports psychology comes in so importantly, that if our country really had a commitment to building character through sports, we would want every single kid to have a sports experience definitely and uh and one of the issues there is a is a classic sociological issue if if uh a young person plays in sport and and doesn't succeed uh and is not one of the best and in fact maybe is one of the worst if if that changes the way people in that child's life uh, interact with them, define them, identify them, then that can have a negative impact on that young person's life. Uh, and so, you know, this is, this is how some of the forces beyond our control sometimes can influence us. So it's hard for that child to be able to look in the mirror uh, like the old Saturday night uh, live person, uh, you know, the self-esteem person saying, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. You know, that only goes so far. 
you know, unless other people treat you in positive ways, unless your relationships are such in connection with your sport participation or because of it, uh, in, in ways that, that make a positive impact on your life, then uh, sport can have detrimental kinds of uh, sport participation can have detrimental effects. And this is something that I'm very concerned with, uh, not just as a sociologist, but as a, uh, as a grandfather now, uh, because I've seen that happen with, with my own grandkids, where uh, when they're not good at a sport, uh, they get discouraged, they're treated negatively, they get uh, a label that's not a positive label, and it, in fact, uh, changes the way they start to look at themselves. So unless there's coaches, parents, other adults around who are smart enough to see what's happening and to change that culture so that even someone who's not doing well can feel good about what they're learning, the connections they have on the team, uh, and the lessons they're learning, apart from just kicking a ball or hitting a ball, whatever, uh, then then youth sports are not living up to the expectations that we have for them. Uh, that, that's fabulous. I got a couple more questions here. Um, why is it? Uh, why is it so important to have more women coaches? You know, Title IX has been around for a long time now. Um, even in girls' sports and, you know, college women's sports, uh, the percentage of men coaches seems to be going up. Why is it important to have more women coaches? Well, on just a practical uh, – from a practical standpoint, our youth sport – programs uh, need coaches. And if we're going to expand, if we're going to actually meet the needs that are out there and provide experiences to a growing number of children, then we need more coaches. And if we exclude 50% of the population, we're just not going to get there. So so there's just a practical consideration. Uh, the other thing is that if, if we want sport to teach young people lessons, one of the classic lessons that young people need to learn is how to handle their relationships with each other uh and and that's across gender so uh so if we sex segregate all of our youth sport programs and if we don't have women coaching uh, uh boys as well as girls uh then what happens is that we're we're removing a whole realm of of potential learning experiences from the lives of those children and uh if you have a woman coach who is is uh, competent, able to teach you things as a, as a little boy, then as you get older, you're going to respect uh, females generally for uh, something other than, uh, than what you hear about in the media. So uh, for their competence, for, uh, for the, the value that, that they can bring to a particular relationship and so on. So uh, so to exclude that kind of experience from children's lives seems to me to be counterproductive if we're interested in development. Yeah, I've got a friend, Colleen Anderson, who's coaching a boys' <clears throat> junior high school uh, <clears throat> uh, team right now, 
and uh, I went to watch her coach, and she played college basketball, and this is one of the best coach teams I've, I've seen. The kids, uh, you know, really play together. They support each other. They, um, you know, just it's just a, 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 a fun to watch to watch that team. They're so well coached. And she was telling me one of the first games she coached. Uh, she's the only woman in the league, and uh, you know, this big, big. Uh, a uh, guy who was the coach on the other team came up and and found out she was the coach and it's like oh a lady coach and um you know <laughs> she she took she took great pride at the end of the game to have, have beaten that guy's team really badly yeah. um, now she's got the, the yeah well that's sports. that's kind of what I'm saying is that we lack the vocabulary and this is really a basic point we lack the vocabulary to even talk about this particular issue so you know when that coach uh, sees that a woman is coaching the other team he doesn't even know how to respond and he says something that 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 makes her irritated and and adds a gender dimension to the game which probably isn't a good thing in the long run but. Uh, but see, so that's we need more of that, so that when we see a woman in that particular kind of position, we know what words to use. Uh, that's just a basic thing, and beyond just the words to use, we know how to engage that person, and we know how to engage them positively, and we know how to engage them in a way that's going to work to our benefit in the long run. And when little boys don't have that kind of experience, then as when they go into the classroom and they go through school, uh, they're maybe uh, uh, at a disadvantage because girls have had the experience of having male authority figures in their lives uh, out on the playing field. And when they meet a male authority figure in the school, this is, no, this is nothing new for them. For boys, it's a little new. And and if they start resisting a female teacher, then this is one of the reasons why they're not graduating from college, maybe at the same rate that that girls are, that young women are, and uh, and maybe they're having uh, some difficulties in in high school and elementary school programs that that girls are not having because we haven't provided our boys with a broad enough set of of experiences related to gender. Wow. Why do you think more women don't go into coaching? I think that that uh and that sport culture generally has emerged out of the values and experiences of men and of men who are interested in competition, domination, in some cases conquest, if we go back into the history of sport. And this, is, this was not a conspiracy. I mean, men develop sport. Of course it's going to represent their values and experiences. So uh, even though there have been changes in participation patterns, the culture of sport uh, with with many with an increasing number of exceptions, I, I should add, uh, still represents the values and experiences of men, and women don't feel as comfortable as men do within those settings. So when somebody says we need a coach, ninety percent of men will say they won't say it this way, but I'm a man, of course I can coach, and uh, you know where's the, where 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 do you want me? Whereas a woman hears that same invitation or request uh, uh, or a need for coaches, and she sits back and thinks, you know, I don't know if I belong there. You know, I don't know if I can do that. 
I don't know if if uh, I'm going to be respected. Uh, so, so women are going to be less likely to jump at those opportunities. So what we need to do is to create some structures that mediate those kinds of responses and and in a sense make make women of all ages in, including high school girls by the way uh to enter either coaching training programs or coaching programs where where they feel that they can get the kinds of competence that that they would like to exhibit when they're out there working with young people so uh unless we do that uh, we're going to be stuck with a coaching shortage and with an experience deficit for our boys. That's beautiful. Thank you. <clears throat> Last question. All the work and research you've done, if you were, were to t- pick one thing that you know that you've learned from your work and your research that you'd like to have every coach and sports parents know, <clears throat> what would that one thing be? Well, I've I've been talking about this lately. Uh I would I would alert them to what I call the great sport myth. And the great sport myth in this culture and many other cultures around the world is based on a, a few beliefs, and those beliefs are that sport is pure and good, essentially pure and good in itself, and that anyone who participates in sport will share in that purity and goodness. Therefore, there's no need to ask any research questions about sport. There's no need to question the way sports are organized. There's no need to question sport at all. If there's a problem in sport, it's due to a bad apple, and we just have to get rid of the bad apples. And what I would say to people is that uh, there is no essential nature of sport, that we create sport, and that uh, we create it in ways that, that – fit what we want it to be and if we become more aware of that then we will be we will feel freer to provide our kids with the kinds of sport uh, opportunities that that are compatible with their age and with their ability so that they can have positive experiences uh and and become better athletes and better people I, I like that line, <laughs> Jay. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy to be on on uh, uh, the board or involved with Positive Coaching Alliance because I think that over the past number of years that I've been observing what's going on in sports, youth sports in particular in this country, the Positive Coaching Alliance has been consistently positive in uh, in what it's been doing and and the impact that it's had uh, there's a lot of people who who talk the talk but they don't necessarily walk the walk and i've been observing the positive coaching alliance along the way and as far as i can see they walk the walk as well so they don't just talk a good game and uh and i think that uh because of its longevity because of the people that it's been able to attract over the years uh, because of its pedagogy, the way it the, the way it goes about teaching, and the philosophy that underlies their teaching processes, uh, all of those things are positive in my mind. So, uh, so I'm more inclined to give some of my time to the PCA than to other organizations. 
That, that's really uh, uh, that's really wonderful, and uh, you know, some of the we we have attracted some fantastic people to the Positive Coaching Alliance movement, and I'm just really delighted that you're involved. I've learned so much from you over the years, and um, I think this has been a fantastic interview, and people are going to uh, get a lot out of it. So thank you so much, Jay. Hey, you're welcome, Jim. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One on One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.